Well, thanks to the praise team um, leading us in praise this morning. Thank you, Bob and Mike, for your service to the church. And I echo Bob's sentiments that can't believe Kazakhstan is already here this Friday. Uh, Mike and I are leaving um, to teach maybe 20-some-odd pastors in Kazakhstan. My big concern is not about the plane flight. It's not about Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Afghanistan. That's not a big deal for me. It's not even the food or my big concern is just that we would teach the Bible faithfully, um, that we would model um, biblical biblical Christianity, model uh, faithfulness before these men, um, that we would minister to them as I'm sure they will minister to us by their life and example. So we desperately need your prayers that... Uh, we're teaching through the book of Acts, and Bob and I are teaching church planting, and that God will grant us the grace to do all things unto Him with excellence. Um, in a way, too, it is an extension of Cornerstone Bible Church's ministry. We are representing uh, this body, and we will send them greetings from all of you. We'll be taking them gifts, and so encourage you, ask you guys to be in prayer uh, for these young men and men who are aspiring to lead the churches there and, and pastor and evangelize the lost there. Well, this morning I thought it was appropriate to do a study on Psalm 19. Maybe my parting shot before I go, just in case. Um, you know, if you know me at all, you know that this is my heart cry sermon. This sermon is the cry of my heart. God were to tell me, by divine revelation, James, I'm taking you home. <laughs> it was a good ride, but it's over. And you can preach one last sermon before I take you home. I would most definitely choose Psalm 19. Because this sermon really has defined my life, defined my family, defined our ministry here at Cornerstone. It has defined for me my Christianity. Um... And the, the origins of the sermon is very interesting. In fall of 1997, my wife and I were married on June 28th, so it was only about a few months after we had gotten married. Um, a youth pastor asked me to come up and speak at his retreat up in Seattle, Washington. I was somewhat hesitant. We had only been married for three months. I didn't want to leave Surin back and be away from her for six days, but uh, and praying over it, Soren told me to go. It was all right. Um, so I agreed to, to go. And I preached the Word of God, I think, six times. Once at their main service and five times at the retreat. And my goodness, I have never been to such a dead church in my life. I mean, talk about zero response to the Word of God. I don't know, I kind of think it's hard to, for people to not, not respond to my preaching. Because if you don't respond, I just yell louder. I just get more animated. I try, to get, I try to get something out of you because I know you're there. But my goodness, from the youth students all the way to the leaders, to even the youth pastor and the leadership, it was like, do you guys understand English? Like, what language am I speaking? And they were all just talking to them during fellowship. They were just complaining about the church, complaining about the pastors, 
complaining about the politics, hypocrisy, the sins that were going on. It was obvious that for the pastors there, it was a job. They were punching a clock. They had really no concern for the sheep. They had a very low view of God's word, low view of God, low view of biblical doctrine. And, you know, I, I was there, and Serene possibly she could have come with me. And, you know, we decided it was best for her to stay home. And I was so glad she didn't come. I came back, and it was first, one of the first things I told Serene, I'm so glad you didn't come with me. Because I was so discouraged while I was there. I was on my knees praying in between each session. God, let me just, you know, show me the power of your word. And there was nothing the whole time. I came back, and I was so discouraged. I was so dejected. I felt like someone literally stabbed me in my heart and they were just twisting that knife over and over. And you know, it was that week I came back in our Lakewood home that we were renting. I went into my office, my room, I opened the Bible and I needed to study the Bible for myself. I needed to be reminded of the value of God's Word, the power of God's Word. The truthfulness of God's word, not for um, Cornerstone, wasn't there yet, but Cornerstone people, not for people that I'm I'm ministering to, but for my own heart. I remember opening Psalm 19, and God and the Holy Spirit really having that truth bear upon my heart and causing me to think about the value of God's word and how, how so little it is appreciated in the church today. How so many professing believers do not value and cherish the Word of God. And I started thinking then that this particular discouragement was a very familiar discouragement to my heart. The discouragement that I face when I talk to many believers, when I talk to even many church leaders, and when I find out that they have a low view of God's Word, It seems that there is a wholesale abandonment of churches, of God's Word, towards God's Word. It starts from the pastor, then to the elders, and of course it filters down to the rest of the congregation. You know what, guys? I am shocked, I am amazed at the neglect of God's Word by so many professing Christians. It seems that the view of God's Word is at an all-time low, and it is blatantly seen. It is crystal clear. It is reflected in how the believers approach and respond to the Word of God. There is a lack of love and cherishing of God's Word. Sure, there is lip service given to it. But their commitment can't be true. The commitment cannot be sincere when you examine their lives and examine their ministries. Right? I mean, how one lives one's life. How one conducts ministry is a true reflection, the true barometer of one's commitment to the Word of God. All Christians say they love God's Word, right? All Christians say they believe it. If that is true, then why is there such a flippant attitude to study, obey, and apply these truths to their lives and to their church? I don't say this lightly. I believe it is a tragedy that Christians today, 
that churches today have such a low view of God's word that they treat it and handle it with such ignorance and disrespect. Now, how do believers dishonor God's word? How do they do that? Well, believers dishonor the word of God by their neglect of it, by their ignorance of it, their lack of seriousness of God's word. When they misinterpret, misunderstand, and misapply the scriptures. When they don't, when they, they have lack of time, lack of effort, lack of energy spent on God's word. They they disrespect the word of God by their lack of passion and zeal for God's word. They do not adore, cherish, and value the word of God above all things. Not only that, believers disrespect the Word of God by elevating other things as equal to or above God's Word. When they elevate spiritual experiences, praise, tradition, culture, their own thoughts, own ideas, philosophies of this world as equal to or above God's Word, at that point, at that instant, they dishonor God's Word. You know, when I visit people's homes, one of the first things I do is I look at their library. And I notice, for most Christians, they have an extensive library of Christian music. Yet their Christian library is limited to, maybe not Cornerstone people, but, you know, Frank Peretti books. Those were really big a few years ago. And for the sisters, maybe those Christian romance novels, Right? Maybe some brothers too, I don't know. Right? <laughs> I mean, you go to Christian bookstores, and have you guys, it's, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Have you guys gone to Christian bookstores lately? I mean, they have a large section committed to music. They have large sections devoted to Christian gifts, pictures of Jesus, right? Erasers with Jesus on it, you know, pencils with Jesus on it. I mean, keychains and, and jewelry. And they have a whole section with those precious moment dolls, right? Moment dolls. All these things have no power effect on our Christian faith. And yet, they're selling. They're the best sellers of the store. You go to even the book section, and the top ten sellers are books like, it was actually a book like this, a top ten seller. When God gives you a lemon, make lemonade. Or chicken soup for the Christian soul. Or the one-minute Bible. You know, the attitude towards God's Word by professing believers is not only discouraging, but it's offensive. When I first saw the one-minute Bible, I talked to the manager of the Christian bookstore, and I said, I can't believe this. I am personally offended that, that, that such a book exists, let alone you would sell this book. I mean, if a Christian is so busy that they'll only spend one minute on the Bible, like, that's sin. That's wrong. And you can't cater to people like that. And the manager, you know what he said? He said, I agree with you. You're right. But it's one of our best sellers. It is. That's the current climate of Christianity today. You know, a Jewish author, social commentator, Dennis Prager, said this. He is not a Christian. He said, quote, One thing I noticed about Christians is that they do not read. They do not read the Bible. Nor do they read the great Christian thinkers. They have never heard of Augustine, 
I do not understand that. As a Jew, that's confusing to me. The commandment of study is so deep in Judaism that we immerse ourselves in study. God gave us a mind. Aren't we to use it in a service? When I walk into a Christian's home and see a total of 30 books, most of them bestsellers, I do not understand. I have bookcases of Christian books and I am a Jew. Why do I have more Christian books than 98% of Christians in America? That is so bizarre to me. End quote. It is bizarre to Mr. Prager, and it is bizarre to all true followers of the faith. It is a tragedy what's happening today, and it is especially a tragedy in light of what the Bible says about itself. This is the first verse I turn to after my Seattle incident. That's what I call it. Deuteronomy 32, verses 46 and 47. Deuteronomy 32, 46 through 47. Moses commands the people of Israel. In their first entrance to Canaan, it was a failure. Because of their disobedience, they have wandered in the desert, wilderness for 40 years. Now the new generation has arrived. He, Deuteronomy, second law, he reiterates reiterates God's commandments to the people of Israel. And then he concludes, he dies in the next chapter. He concludes by saying this to, to God's people. Take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words to you. They are your life. By them you will live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Underline that. They are not just idle words. They are not just empty words. They are your life. The Word of God is your life. By the word of God, you will live. And Paul echoes this. In Romans 1.16, he said, There is no other way for man to be saved apart from the word of God. No way. You want to be saved? It is through the gospel of Christ, the word of Christ. In John 17.17, Christ says, You want to grow in your salvation? You want to be sanctified? You want to mature? You want to grow in holiness? There's only one way. The word of God. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. God extols the unique power of the scriptures to cause a Christian to grow and mature. It highlights the power of God's Word to nurture, nourish, encourage, comfort, and empower the faith of the Christian. There is an overwhelming amount of instructions concerning the pivotal role that the Bible plays for the believer. 1 Peter 1.23 Peter says, You have been born not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. And then he says in chapter 2, verse 2, Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. This is a command to all believers, that we are to crave pure milk of God's Word like newborn babies. Now guys, you guys are single, you have no idea what Peter is talking about. You guys that are married and you don't have a child, you have no idea what that's like. 
All the parents here understand what that means. What it means for a newborn baby to crave milk. A baby will wake up every two, three hours and cry for milk. They'll wake up at midnight and you feed them. They wake up at 2.30 a.m. and they will not stop crying because they want milk. You feed them. They'll wake up 4.45. You, you got to wake up out of bed. You got to go and feed the baby. Or my wife does, right? <laughs> and then they wake up at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., 11.30, 2.30. At home, in public, at church, they don't care. They want milk. They crave it. They will cry until they are fed. Peter must be a parent. And Peter understands. And Peter says, that's the kind of appetite all Christians, all believers, are to have towards the Word of God. Well, I had to ask myself then, as I came back and studied Psalm 19, I have to ask myself this question often. Am I just as guilty of lip service to God's Word? Do I crave the Word of God? Is it my passion in life? Is it my heart cry? What place, really, what place does God's Word have in my heart? Really, what is my true view of God's Word? Do I truly honor the words of God with my life, or is it just lip service? Do I honor God by my life, by my ministry? So with that aim, to understand the value of God's Word in a believer's life, turn with me to Psalm 19. In a way, for those of you who have come, I don't think I've preached a sermon at Cornerstone for over three years. You understand Psalm 19, that you understand the heart of the elders, really. You understand Psalm 19, that you understand what Cornerstone Bible Church is all about, You understand our vision. You understand our core values. You understand what we're all about by understanding this chapter. Verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 19. Psalmist declares, David declares, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy, it rises from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. In the first six verses, we see God's general revelation. Verses 7 through 14 is God's special revelation. Verses 1 through 6, David declares God's general revelation. And we see five characteristics of God's general revelation. First of all, the medium is through His creation. The medium is His creation. Special revelation was given through prophets, given through apostles, and ultimately given in Christ. But general revelation, the medium is God's creation. The sky, the heavens, the sun, the stars, the moon, the animal world, even our DNA, and the molecular level, all of that declares the glory of God. Secondly, that's what 
general, revela- general revelation declares the heavens, God's creation declares God's glory, God's majesty, God's power, God's might, the greatness of God. As we look at the universe, Look out to the Milky Way. We can clearly apprehend that God is powerful. That God is divine. That God is supernatural. That God is above us. Thirdly, it is clearly seen. It is beheld fully. It is distinctly apprehended. God's glory is not hidden. We don't have to go search for it. All we need to do is open our eyes and we see the glory of God declared by His creation. Fourth characteristic is that it is a perpetual witness. A perpetual witness. A tireless preacher. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, God's creation declares with a loud, booming voice of God's glory. It, it crosses cultural, ethnic, geographical, language barriers. There is not a land, a people where this voice is not heard. Every person alive can discern and hear the voice of God's creation. Fifthly and finally, it is not bound by human barriers of distance, language, and culture. That was the fifth point. It is not bound by anything. Everyone hears the sermon of God preached through His creation. Every country, tribe, and tongue They see God's glory. They hear of His wonder. In verses 4 through 6, David declares the sun is the dominant feature of God's general revelation. In the heavens, God has pitched the tent for the sun. And like a bridegroom, a champion, He runs His course with joy, rising from the one end, making a circuit to the other, talking about the sun, how the sun is the dominant feature of God's general revelation, and that as the sun is the dominant feature of God's general revelation, so it is with the law of the Lord. Starting with verse 7, David shows that God's law, the word of God, is the primary and dominant element of God's revelation. Theologians call it specific revelation, special revelation. We won't have time to go through the whole psalm. We'll just look at the three characteristics from verses 7 and 8. Three characteristics and benefits of God's Word to Christians. Three characteristics and benefits of God's Word. Look at verse 7. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. In the Hebrew, the word perfect has two senses, two aspects. It's talking about perfection in terms of its purity. Also, perfection in terms of its completeness. First of all, it is perfectly pure. God's Word is completely free from corruption and compromise. Psalm 119, 160 All your words are true. All your righteous are eternal. Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are flawless, like silver refined in a furnace of clay, purified seven times. 
theologians use the term inerrancy, meaning that God's word, the autographs, the original documents contain no errors. There are no errors in its statements, declarations, prophecies, and conclusions. Why? Because God is perfect. There's a close connection between Yahweh and His revelation. And because God is perfect, what He spoke, what He inspired men to write down is perfect as well. To attack the Scriptures as impure, to attack the Bible as full of errors, as a fallible text, is a direct affront to God, a direct attack against God. If you assign error to the Scriptures, then you are assigning error to God Himself. Second Peter 1, 20-21, Peter makes this clear. That the Word of God did not originate in the mind of man. It did not originate in the interpretation of a prophet. No. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit superintended the whole process as the Word of God was written down. Paul says it another way. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is inspired by God. It is breathed out by God Himself. Psalm 19.7 The Bible. All of it is pure. It is without error. It is from God. Now, as a side note, that is why, as believers, it is important that we embrace and obey all of the Scriptures. That we cannot have a buffet-style mentality to the Word of God. And we go to hometown buffet and we just take what we want and we skip the salad bar, right? We go directly for dessert or directly for the meat. We can't apply that kind of mindset to God's Word and say, you know what? I like that promise. Man, that's encouraging. Man, I'll highlight that one. What? Deny myself? Obey? Christ came to divide? Right? Suffer? No, it's okay. I'll set that to the side. If you do this, you're rejecting God. 1 Timothy 4.8 He who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but rejects God. Whatever the Bible says, because it is pure, it is truth. We cannot, we must not, prop ourselves as the arbiter of truth and judge God's word and tell God's word what is right and what is wrong. I say this all, this t- all the time. We don't judge God's word. God's word judges us. Whether it's issues like homosexuality, abortion, unconditional election, Sovereignty of God, total depravity, role of men and women. We don't determine what is right and wrong. The Word of God is pure. We're impure. We're sinners. We believe what we believe because that is what the Bible teaches. Isn't that reasonable? That Christ mediates His Lordship, mediates His authority through His Word, and that is the Bible. God's Word is perfect in the sense of its purity. Secondly, God's Word is pure in the sense that it's complete. 
that it is sufficient. It has everything we need. Perfect in the fullness of its part. See, nothing in the world is like that. You know, all you doctors out there, you understand that, that all the scientific studies aren't complete. They're still studying. They're still learning. Conclusions are, well, we'll see. So far, this is our conclusion, but we'll wait till next week. They might discover something else. Social sciences, you know, information, all the data in the world. They're all works in progress. But not the Word of God. The Word of God is finished. It is complete. It is sufficient. And only the Bible, therefore, because it is perfect, accomplishes this. Verse 7, reviving the soul. Reviving the soul. The Greek word is shawab. New American Standard Version translates it, restoring the soul. Doing a word study on this word study on this uh, Hebrew word. I think King James Version has it the best. Converting the soul. Schwab means to turn back. It is telling us that only the Word of God has the power to save the lost, to convert the lost sinner. 2 Timothy 3.15 Paul tells Timothy, how you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation. Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Psalm 19.7 tells us that nothing has the power to save lost sinners apart from the Word of God. The gospel alone is the power of God to render unto a man salvation. That's why Paul ministered in that way. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, When I came to you, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Greeks, you wanted wisdom. You wanted philosophy. I resolved to know nothing. The Jews, you wanted miracles and signs. I didn't perform a single miracle with you. My sole effort was to proclaim Christ and Him crucified, the gospel of Christ, because the gospel of Christ alone saves the sinner. That is why we, we evangelize the way we do. That is why I preach the way I do. That is why we teach the Word of God at Cornerstone the way we do, because we know that only the Word of God saves and sanctifies we know we don't need dramas. We don't need marketing. We don't need a dog and pony show. We have all that we need for our ministry of reconciliation. We have the Word of God. Second characteristic of God's Word. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Trustworthy. The Hebrew word there implies that the Word of God is so firm is so steadfast that it is worthy of our trust. That the Word of God is worth our trust. In a world where we can't trust technology, we can't trust information, we can't trust science, we can't trust psychology, all of this has been corrupted by sin. Not only that, we can't even trust ourselves. 
We can't even trust our own counsel, our own hearts. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things. The greatest liar in the world, the greatest deceiver is our own hearts. The last person we should listen to for counsel is ourselves. It is beyond cure, Jeremiah says. Who can understand? That's the noetic effects of sin. Sin has contaminated and affected all creation, especially mankind. Where man's mind, man's heart, man's soul, man's emotions, his senses has been corrupted by sin, therefore cannot be trusted except for God's word. The word of God is trustworthy and it gives wisdom to the simple. What does it mean? It gives wisdom to live life. You know, we are foolish. We are without discernment, without insight, understanding. We need wisdom on how to love our spouse, how to raise our children, how to teach our children, how to train them, how to discipline them. We need wisdom on how to handle our finances, how to relate to this world, how to serve God, how to serve in His church. Life requires much wisdom, and where do we get it from? Bible says, the Bible, it's worthy of our trust. It gives wisdom to the simple. Psalm 119, 98 through 100. Psalm says, your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. Listen to verse 100. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. Proverbs 8.5, Solomon says, You who are simple, gain wisdom. You who are foolish, gain understanding. Proverbs 9.6, Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of wisdom. And that's found in God's Word. And a final one, perhaps my favorite, verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right giving joy to the heart. The Hebrew word right is yashar. It means that the word of God is united. It holds to one direction. You know, we use this term to describe people, right? Man, that's a straight up guy. That's a right on guy. Meaning, he doesn't have two faces. He doesn't say one thing in front of you and another thing behind your back. She is not wavering. He is not cowardly. They have, they have one statement and they hold to it. They're not duplicitous. That's what, the, that's what the Word of God says about itself. The Word of God is straight. It will not bind you with contradictory commands. It will not bind you with contradictions and false statements. It will teach one unified doctrine of truth. So what is the benefit? What does it produce? It rejoices the heart. It gives joy to the heart. The Hebrew verb there, samak, suggests true and lasting joy. When all the joys of this life is fleeting and temporal, the Bible says the Word of God gives you true joy, gives you lasting joy. Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, When your words came, I ate them, there are my joy and my heart's delight. 
far I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. What about Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus? Remember that? The disciples were going to the road to Emmaus and a stranger comes alongside of them. And they're all mourning. And the stranger says, why are you guys sad? And they respond to the stranger, what are you talking about? Have you not heard of what happened to Jerusalem? What happened? Our Messiah came and he was, he was killed, crucified on the cross. The stranger came alongside and he opened up the scriptures and explained all the prophecies concerning the Messiah. When they came to a, a town, the disciples asked the man to lodge with them. And at that instant, the man disappeared. And it was then they realized that it was the Lord. And in verse 32, disciples declare, Were not our hearts burning within us while He talked with us on the road and opened the Scriptures to us? Now, you've got you to gotta ask the question, why was Christ hiding from His disciples? Why didn't He? You guys are sad because Christ died? It's me. I'm alive. I've risen. Look. Don't be sad. Rejoice. I'm here. Why did he hide himself from them and open the scriptures? I believe it is clear to teach this truth. The joy of the Christian life is not some experience. It's not some emotional high. It's not some charismatic experience. The joy of the Christian life is what? Understanding the word of God. Living by its commands. That's that's what the disciples say. We're not our hearts burning within us when he opened the scriptures and explained the word of God. That is the joy of the Christian life. That is a, our heart cry. You know, at Cornerstone, uh, people tell me once in a while, man, James, that sermon was so good. Man, that word that was preached was so sweet to my soul. I can go for another one. That's right hard, isn't it? You ever go to a restaurant and you eat, you know, whatever. I'm not going to say anything. I don't want to distract anybody. But you, you eat something and, man, you're full, but it's just so good. Even though you're full, you just want to keep eating. Cause it's just so good. It tastes so good. Well, that should be your attitude towards the Word of God. Even though we're full, it's so good that we want more and more and more. That's what David says in Psalm 19, verse 10. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. The most precious commodity in ancient Near East was gold. David says, the Bible is worth more. The sweetest substance known then was honey. David says, the Bible is sweeter. It is sweet to believers. What a value the Word of God is to Christians. What is God's Word to you? Look at your life. Consider your ministry. Consider how you spend your time, where you devote your energy and effort. Is the Word of God valuable to you? You know, I'm not all into stories just for a story's sake. Only when I believe it highlights the biblical truth and I'll share with you a lengthy story because... I think it so highlights to us the value of the Bible to a Christian life. 
Many of you guys have heard this story, um, heard of this uh, person as well. Rabbi Zacharias is an apologist, uh, a minister of the gospel. In his book, um, Deliver Us From Evil, he tells a story of how he went to Vietnam in 1971 to hold evangelistic meetings to soldiers and all the people there. He had an interpreter who accompanied him, who traveled with him the length and breadth of that country for that whole year. Um, an energetic and devoted young Christian named Hin. As they told the ministry together, they became very close. And as Rabbi Zacharias left the country later on in 1971, he wondered to himself what will happen to Vietnam. And second, he wondered to himself what will happen to his friend, Hien. Well, we know through history, within four years, Vietnam fell into communist hands, and Hien's fate remained unknown. Seventeen years later, 1988, Robbie received a phone call with the voice in the other line saying, Brother Robbie, he writes, immediately I recognized Hien's voice. We got caught up with our pleasantries. Then I asked him how he had managed to get out of Vietnam and come to the United States. I was not prepared for the story I was about to hear. He told him that short, shortly after Vietnam fell to the communists, he was arrested. He was accused and indicted for aiding and abetting the Americans. And he was sent to a concentration camp. During the jail term, the sole purpose of his jailers was to indoctrinate him against the West, especially against the Christian faith. He was cut off from reading anything in English and was restricted to communist propaganda in French or Vietnamese. The daily overdose of the writings of Marx and Engels began to take its toll on him. One of the books he was given to read pictured the communist man as a bird in an ironclad cage of capitalism, throwing itself against the bars of the West and blooding itself in the process. They repeatedly told him that he was lied to, that he was deceived, that he was a pawn being used by the West to corrupt the country's ideals. He began to buckle under the onslaught. He thought to himself, maybe I have been lied to. Maybe God does not exist. Maybe my whole life has been governed by lies. Maybe the West has deceived me. The more he thought, the more he moved toward a decision. And one day he made up his mind. He determined in his heart in the concentration camp that when he awakened the next day, he would no longer pray anymore. And he would never ever think of his Christian faith again. Next morning came, and of all things, he was assigned to clean the latrines of the prison. It was the most dreaded chore shunned by everyone. And so with much distress, he began the awful task. As he cleaned out a tin can filled to overflowing with toilet paper, his eye caught what he thought was English printed on one piece of paper. He hurriedly washed it off, slipped it into his hip pocket, planning to read it later that night. He had not seen English for such a long time. He anxiously waited for a free moment. Later that night, after everyone had gone to sleep, he pulled out that piece of paper, and under moonlight, literally with shock, he read on the corner, Romans chapter 8. And he read these words, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, 
who have been called according to His purpose. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He wept and wept. He knew his Bible. He had not seen one for so long. Not only that, he knew there was not a more relevant passage of conviction and strength for one, on the verge of surrendering to the threat of evil, he cried out to God that night, asking for forgiveness. For that was the first day that he had determined not to pray. He prayed a prayer of repentance, confessing God and his faith in Christ. The next day, he volunteered to clean the latrines of the prison camp. And he found out that one of the officers in the camp, was using the Bible as toilet paper. What is trash to the world? What is junk to the world? It is the most precious and valuable thing for the believer. What is the Word of God to you? Do you have a high view of God's Word? Do you love it? Are these just idle words to you? Or are they your life? so that you might live as believers. I'll close with this. I'll summarize a lot. But Thomas Watson, in in his book, Godly Man's Picture, he wrote this. He says, the godly man, the godly woman, loves the Word of God. Godly man loves the counseling part of the Word. The godly man loves the threatening part of the Word. The godly man loves the consolatory part of the word. How does the godly man show his love for God's word? He shows it, number one, by reading it. A godly man's heart is the library that holds the word of God. It dwells richly in him. Secondly, by frequently meditating on it. Psalm 119.97 It is my meditation all the day long. The godly man not only has a, he does not have a few transient thoughts, but leaves his mind in the scriptures. By meditation, he sucks from this sweet flower and ruminates on holy truths in his mind. Thirdly, the godly man loves the word of God by delighting in it. It is his recreation. It is his favorite dish. Fourthly, he loves by hiding it. Psalm 119.11 Your word I have hidden in my heart. As one hides a treasure so that it would not be stolen, the godly man hides the word of God where? In his heart. He loves it by defending it. He loves it by preferring it above other things in this world. 
above food. Job 23.12 I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily food. The godly man loves the word of God. How much? He spends more time on it than his food. The priority of, above food. Secondly, above riches. Psalm 119.72 The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. The godly man loves the word of God by talking about it. Psalm 119.172 My tongue shall speak of your word. It is on his tongue day and night. He's constantly talking and speaking the word of God. And finally, the godly man loves the word of God by conforming to it, by obeying its command. Do we love the written word of God? Do we love the word of God when it is proclaimed? May we cherish it as it is, not idle words, but as our life. Father, it is our prayer that when we see the lost around us, whether in our family or friends, that we will look to your word and proclaim your word. Lord, when we need wisdom, when we have decisions that we need to make, hard-pressed, difficult decisions in our lives, Lord, we will not look to this world. Lord, that we will look to your word. Lord, when we are discouraged, when we're disappointed, when we're filled with sorrow, Lord, we will not find joy in this world. We will find our delight in you. Lord, that your people would love your word, that we would have a high view of scripture and cherish it, for they are your words given to us that we might running the path of your commands. Lord, we thank you for, though we are unworthy, considering us worthy of your truth, may we be faithful stewards of it, studying, obeying, and faithfully teaching this truth to the next generation. In Jesus' name, amen.